Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> hello. Hello, everyone. I know about three of you, so. Um, I'm Dave. Isn't it wonderful to be a part of a church? Uh, when I arrived today, I saw two friends. One of them told me that he may well fall asleep during the sermon. And the second one told me that he'd get his brother to listen if it was any good, which, which both of which, great encouragements. My birthday was last week, New Year's Eve, and uh, I'm now officially has to get out of bed in the morning and sort of go like this to make my sternum click back into place years old. So I'm really feeling it at the moment. It's a sad time. Um, anyone know what today is, the 6th of January. Jess knows it's Epiphany today. If we were in a church which follows the church calendar, which we're not, really, we do Christmas and Easter, but not anything else, we would, well, apart from today, today's a special day, because I, when I preach, you sort of, there's positives and negatives, and one of them is we follow the church calendar when I preach. Um, Today is Epiphany. Anyone knows what Epiphany, anyone know what Epiphany celebrates? The arrival of the wise man to Jesus. Now, you may have seen uh, nativity plays over the last uh, month, two months even, where the wise men turned up on the night. The shepherds turn up, they bring the sheep. The wise men turn up, they bring their camels and their gifts. That's not really what the Bible story suggests. The Bible story suggests they turned up some time later, still during the reign of King Herod, so not too long later, but later. And so it's celebrated separately. But the main reason it's celebrated separately is because it's celebrated as the arrival of the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. So God has this relationship, this unique relationship with the people of Israel, and it doesn't really get outside of them very much in the Old Testament, although we'll get to the ways in which it does later. This story, the arrival of the wise men to visit Jesus, is the announcement of the gospel, the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. People we don't know, people who are far off, people we don't even know where they came from. They were from the east somewhere don't know the country, don't know their names, don't know their jobs, apart from that they were magi, which could be translated wise men or magicians or wizards. They, they lived in a court of a king somewhere in the east, we don't know where, and they were some of the people who were first aware of the birth of Jesus. And they knew things, whether they consciously knew it or not, they testified about things about Jesus that only Joseph and Mary knew so far. Maybe Simeon and Anna as well, as we heard in the last couple of weeks. So this is an epiphany sermon, a sermon about God revealing himself to us, to the Gentiles. And I'm going to go through three points, because I haven't preached for a while, but I remember that you need three points. <laughs> I haven't preached for a while, so I haven't managed to get all the points to start with the same letter of the alphabet. So, because there's, there's rust, there's rust, but I'll get there. Um, the three points, Yahweh is Lord, 
We'll get to who Yahweh is in a second. Jesus is Yahweh, number two. And any Logic fans in the crowd, do you know what my third point will be already? Yahweh is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. The logical third point, Jesus is Lord. Right. Excellent. Well done. (laughs) Right. Why am I talking about Yahweh? Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel. That's a name he reveals to Moses. And it's really important when we talk about things like who God is, we we know which God we're talking about. It's, It's fine to say to people, oh, I believe in God. Well, the logical next question, which God do you believe in? Because they'll have one of a million different ideas of what you mean by that. And so it's important that we, um, we talk about it with his name. So we're naming the God that we're talking about. So I will read the passage. The passage is in Matthew chapter 2. It might appear on the screen. I was incredibly late with my communications with the office. So if it doesn't, it's entirely my fault. It's there. Oh, magic. Magic, or Ben, as we also call him. Um, I will read this, and then we'll pray, and then I will either run away or preach. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. What is revealed to us, who I assume are mainly, at least, Gentiles, through this story of the revelation to the Gentiles? Well, first of all, Yahweh is Lord. And Yahweh's Lord is literally true in your Bibles. If you read the Old Testament, the word Yahweh in the Hebrew is translated as the Lord in capital letters. So if you ever see the Lord in capital letters in your Old Testament and think, why is that written in capital letters? That's weird. It's because it's not translating a word that means Lord. It's translating the name of God himself. So every time you see that word, he's talking about the God of Israel. Now this God puts a star in the sky, puts something in the sky that the wise men understand to mean that a baby has been born, the new king in Israel. Now, we don't know, again, this theme of we don't know much about the wise men reappears. We don't know what they knew, what they understood by the star. We don't even know what they saw. If it was a natural phenomenon, I think it was probably, from reading up on this, a comet, because it seems to rise twice, once when Jesus was born, 
it appears in the sky. And then they don't actually, I mean, don't want to spoil Nativity Place for you, but they don't actually follow the star to Jerusalem. They just see the star, work out that there's a king born in Israel, journey to Jerusalem. And then when they are ready to go to Bethlehem, they see the star again. And it says they were overjoyed. They weren't necessarily expecting to see the star again, but they see it again. The only thing, natural thing, that has two risings that appears twice, can appear, then disappear, then appear again, is a comet, because they have weird orbits. It might have been a comet. It doesn't matter. It might have been a light that God just put in the sky that only they could see, for all we know. However, whatever it was, it was God telling them, look to your books and see what this means. And it was God who knew what was in their books, putting something in the sky that meant that their books told them to go to Jerusalem. It's the God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel is Lord, even of the skies, even of the stars. But what right have we to think this based on the Old Testament? Because Matthew is a book that's written mainly to a Jewish audience, we think. And the reason we think that is because after literally half of the things that happens, he says, and this was to fulfill this prophet, and this was to fulfill this. This happened just like Isaiah said. This happened just like Jeremiah said. And you'd only write those things if you're writing to people who knew their Old Testament and were thought, oh, yeah, that's significant. Um, only if you wanted to convince people that this is the Messiah that was prophesied in that Old Testament. But he's... Um, so immediately you think, well, what is it about what the God of the Old Testament that leads us to think that he might be able to do this, put stars in the sky that lead people on great journeys to reveal his son? Well, there's a lot of things, actually. (laughs) Each uh, tribe in the Old Testament, each nation or people group had a god or gods. That god belonged to the people, and the people belonged to that god. He told them, he or she told them what to do, told them what what conquest to go on, told them how to defeat their enemies, told them how to do stuff. And the people of Israel had Yahweh. So you might think that he's just one among the many gods of the nations, but he doesn't seem that way when you read the Old Testament. It's one of the things that is so important about reading the Old Testament is you learn that this God is a different category than all these other gods. This God is a different thing. He's not a thing, in fact. Um, This God is more powerful and more involved in the lives of other nations. What's incredible is that his boundaries don't seem to end at the borders of Israel. When the people of Israel are slaves in the land of Egypt, well, God seems to be, (laughs) their God seems to become the God of Egypt. He demands that the leader of Egypt lets his people go, and when Pharaoh says no, he systematically sends plagues which fight against each of ten gods of Egypt. Oh, so you have a god of the Nile. Well, I'll turn the Nile to blood, and his priests won't be able to do anything about it. Oh, you've got the Ra, the sun god. Well, I'll make the sky black for three days, and, and Ra will be powerless to prevent it. Oh, oh, you've got a god of agriculture. Well, I'll send locusts, and there's nothing he'll be able to do about it. The, 
the story of the Exodus, amongst a lot of other things, it's so key to understanding the Bible, but the story of the Exodus is the story of the, the, little, the God of the little slave group triumphing over the gods, the many gods arrayed against them, the gods of Egypt. Triumphing, putting them to shame. And when Paul later says that Jesus put the principalities and powers to shame in the cross, it's just a repeat of what of what, G, of what Yahweh did to the gods of Egypt. Yahweh completely putting to shame these gods who are meant to be so powerful, the gods of the nations. And not only that, but he was using the nations, arranging them for his purposes. When Israel um, disobeyed God and he gave them chance after chance and they still disobeyed him, he sent them into exile in Babylon. And there's a huge debate almost in the prophets about Lord, how can you do this? How can you use Babylon to discipline us? Babylon are the bad guys. And God says, I'm their God as well. I will judge them. Uh, my, my judgment isn't just related to you. I will judge the whole earth. And when their time comes, they will fall, just as you have fallen. When their time comes, when, their time comes when I say it does. So this God is not just the God of a small tribe of desert wanderers or a small tribe of Canaanites. He's the God of heaven and earth who has chosen this small tribe, this nation to be his. So we shouldn't be surprised when we get to the Magi and we see God going, to, going into his, nah, it sounds wrong to say pot of tricks, doesn't it? But going into his storehouses of ideas and saying, right, I'm going to put a star in the sky that's going to mean that these people read their books and journey to Jerusalem. I'm going to reveal to my son in a way that even they will be able to understand. These people who know nothing about, probably nothing about the Old Testament, nothing about the Scriptures. And these wise men who, again, we don't know anything about, they journey in obedience, in interest, in longing to worship or longing to at least pay homage to this new king. And they arrive in in Jerusalem and they find another Gentile because King Herod is a Gentile. He's an Edomite who was put in charge of the, of the area of Israel by the Roman Empire and he's won his way to the throne by murder. So you can see that he would be quite dismayed to find out there's a Jewish king just been born because he's not Jewish. So he's thinking, goodness me, if people know about this, they will follow that guy. They won't be following me. So that sort of explains his extreme reaction to events, his desire to get rid of this Jewish king. And we have a choice when we're presented with the truth of the Jewish Messiah, the truth of Jesus. We have a choice as Gentiles whether to go and worship him like the wise men or whether to react in anger as our gods are torn down. Because it is a hard thing. It is a hard thing to let go of the things that you did depend on and depend on something that seems on the face of it so unlikely, a little baby being born in a backwater of the Roman Empire. But we have a choice. And my advice to you is be like the wise men. Go and find out about this baby. <coughs> Yahweh is king. He, Yahweh is Lord, he made this circumstance happen. 
The second point in this story, Jesus is Yahweh. Where does that come in? It's quite a claim for a little baby, isn't it? You've got a little baby who's somewhere between two weeks and a year old, and he's either gurgling on his mother's arms or he's sort of taking his first steps around a room, and he's saying, this is the God of Israel. Well, when the uh, Magi arrive in Jerusalem, they say, um, we saw his star when it rose, and I've come to worship him. <laughs> now, this, wo- this word worship, um, it could have meant just pay homage to, like you would do a king, but Matthew, I, we don't know what they meant by it, but Matthew, for sure, means us to read the word worship and think, goodness. Because remember, he's writing this to Jews who know their Old Testament, who know that only Yahweh should be worshipped, who know that every time, even when Yahweh sent a great messenger, a great warrior, even when the people saw visions and they bowed down to worship an angel, the angel would say, no, get up, get up, don't worship me, worship God alone. They knew that if this wasn't Yahweh, then it was completely inappropriate to write that word in this gospel, really. To write it approvingly, that they were going to worship him. And when they arrived, they did worship him. And there were no repercussions. Mary didn't go, no, don't worship him. Worship God alone. It just happened, and it was as natural as the wind. The... um, Jesus is this God, Yahweh, this God who did all these incredible acts in Egypt, is being born as a little baby in a manger. When the wise men come and worship him, they give him three gifts. And that's what we're going to concentrate on for the rest of the uh, time we have. Anyone know the hymn, uh, We Three Kings of Orient Are? Anyone sung it this Christmas? Hands up if you've already sung it. Some of you see? Bad, bad church calendar, watch there. You shouldn't have sung it till today. But anyway, <laughs> there is forgiveness. Um, <laughs> that's all right, honestly. Um, I'm going I'm to go for the middle gift first because it fits in with my three points. Clever preacher trick. Um, Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh. Incense proclaims that God is here, is near. So they give him this gift of frankincense, a strange gift to give to a baby, but it's a gift that signifies the presence of God. And it does, even today, if you were at a, ch- at a high Anglican church on Christmas Day, on Easter Day, there'd be a, someone walking down the aisle with a censer swinging, full of incense, swinging into the aisles. And you'd smell the smell, and you'd feel the sort of breathing in of the smoke, breathing in of the heat, and you'd get that visual representation of the presence of God, which is what it's for. It's, it's not, there's nothing magic claimed by the action. It's a, it's a visual aid. It's something you might use in a sermon to say, look, God is in us and around us. God is here. We're in the presence of God today. That's why churches do it even today. But the readers of this gospel would also have made that association. Um, again, going back to the Exodus, when Moses goes through the Red Sea, 
and leads his people out, what guides them on? Well, there's a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. That, that massive pillar of smoke was what was leading them and protecting them from their enemies, confusing the Egyptians, what was leading them in the way they should go all the way to the mountain. When Moses gets to the Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, which you hopefully you've heard of, um, the mountain is covered in cloud. The mountain is covered in smoke as Moses goes up to signify the presence of God. When, when Moses is talking to God in the tabernacle, the tent, that is where Moses met with God and talked with him. When God was talking to Moses, a pillar of cloud would again descend on the tabernacle. This was this imagery of smoke, of cloud, of, of something both fragrant and living and something you could breathe in was always been a symbol throughout the Bible of God's presence. And here are the wise men, knowingly or unknowingly, we don't know, giving a gift that signified that Jesus is Yahweh. But it's quite a big thing to put on a baby to say this baby is God. It's quite a lot to live up to. Even if you have the name of a famous person, it might be quite a lot to live up to. But what about being called God, being prophesied and testified as God at or close to your birth? Did Jesus live up to it? Because people hadn't before. Moses didn't live up to it. Moses was as identified with God as a person could be. He was the one who actually waved his staff and the rivers turned to blood. He was doing the very actions that God was doing on earth. It was almost as if sometimes that yeah, um, Moses was, anything Moses did was what God did, and certainly a lot of the time what Moses did was what God was doing, but he failed. He disobeyed God, and he didn't reach the promised land. He didn't make good on his promise. He didn't make good on the promise of him being someone who was so closely related and intertwined with God. What would Jesus do? Was Jesus another one like Moses, one who was filled with God but wouldn't quite make it in the end, one who was ultimately just a man who wouldn't, wouldn't quite live up to expectations? Well, um, John the Baptist had a similar question, actually. Um, John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus. He, he proclaimed, he testified that this is the Son of God. In John's Gospel, he says... I saw him and the Holy Spirit said to me that this is the Son of God. But in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison and he's having doubts, it seems. He sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you really the one or should we wait for the one to come? Are you, are you really the one that was prophesied about? Or is there another? Have I made a mistake here? Because things aren't going well for me. So I just want to be sure that it's not been in vain. And uh, Matthew 11, verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Here is someone much greater than Moses. Here is someone who is God himself, who does things that only God can do, who does 
These things not in isolation, not in isolated events like some of the prophets in the Old Testament. Not raising one, but raising two. Not, not healing one leper, but healing ten at a time. Not feeding a few people with bread, with poison soup, but, um, and healing the poison soup like Elijah did, but, but he, feeding 5,000 people with a few bits of bread and fish. Here is one who is God himself walking on earth. He made it. He is that one that was promised, where all other hopes had been dashed because they were just people in the end. He is the one who is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Final point before we close. The logical end point of this sermon. Jesus is Lord. Let's look at the other two gifts, and I'll do them in the the order they appear. Gold. Gold, um, I bring to crown him again, is the line from the song, isn't it? Gold is proclaiming Jesus as king. But what type of king would he be? Well, again, the readers of Matthew read king or read gold, read king, and think, David. He's going to be David's son, the one that was prophesied about, the Messiah. He's going to be like King David. Now, King David was this incredible king, the best king of Israel by a long, long way. In fact, in some ways, the only true good king of the whole united Israel. And, And he was, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. He did the things that God do. Similar to, similar to Moses, but in quite a different way. He was shepherding his people. He was loving his people. His kingdom was ever-expanding. It, it reached its biggest extent during the reign of King David. He um, was merciful. He wrote the, uh, at least half of the Psalms, which are the books that taught Israel how to relate to God how to come to God in triumph and disaster, how to come to God in joy and pain, in bitterness, in anger. He, he knew how to come to God in every circumstance, how to be the shepherd of his people. He was also an adulterer and a murderer. He didn't, he, like Moses, he didn't finish the race very well. He, didn't, he did what God wanted a lot of the time, but he didn't manage it all the time. He wasn't the true king that Israel eventually would need. As a demonstration of the difference between David and Jesus, I just want to read a story from the end of David's life. So David is king over Israel and has been for a long time, and he decides to count his fighting men, do a census. Now, we're not told that this was explicitly against the rules, but literally everyone who he discusses it with says, no, don't do it. It's terrible. It's a bad idea. You shouldn't be doing this. The guy, the leader of the army who eventually does the job, Joab, he does a really bad job of it deliberately because he thinks it's a terrible thing to do. So this is obviously widely known amongst him, his, even his army, and certainly amongst the prophets who were with him at the time, that this was a terrible, sinful thing to do. There's no doubt. He didn't just accidentally do it and find out later. Joab said to him, don't do this, and he did it anyway. So David commits this sin. Um, He realizes what he's done after he's done it, and and he is sad. The prophet Gad comes to him, and Gad says, 
what you've done is a grievous sin against God. There are three choices for your punishment. It's a weird, a strange story, but it's for our benefit, right? He says there's three, the three choices for your punishment. He says you can either endure three years of famine as a nation, you can run away from your enemies for three months, or you can have three days of plague sweep through the land. And David looks at this logically and he thinks, well, I don't want to fall into the hands of my enemies. But, because that, I don't trust that they'll be merciful, but if I fall into the hands of God, I know he'll have mercy. So he opts for the three days of plague. And this plague ravages the land. 70,000 people die. And the symbol of this plague is an angel with a sword above Jerusalem. David sees the angel with the sword above Jerusalem after all these people have died. And he says, it says this, David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with drawn sword in his hand, extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. And David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord, my God, let your hand fall on me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. In the end, he does the right thing. But initially, his initial response to him sinning, he's a shepherd king. He's meant to be the one guiding and keeping his people. He's meant to be the one, as in Jesus' story, who searches out the lost and brings them all together. That's, that was his job prior to being king. He was a shepherd, and in this moment, the shepherd sins, and he sacrifices the sheep for his own sin. A massive abdication of responsibility, and only in the end, when he sees what he's done, does he say, no, let it fall on me. Well, Jesus is the opposite. He, too, is a shepherd king who's sent to serve and redeem his people. He's sent to save the ones who are lost. He is the shepherd who sees the sin of the sheep and sacrifices himself for their sin. David sacrifices the sheep for his sin, lays down innocent life because he'd done a thing that he knew to be wrong. Jesus sees the things that we have done that we know to be wrong, and he takes them upon himself, and he dies for them. He dies in our place. That's the kind of king Jesus is. And that's what the third gift signifies, the myrrh. Myrrh is an embalming spice. It's for a dead body. Another strange gift to give to a baby, but a prophetic gift that the wise men give that says this will be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Not just, as has been prophesied, the the Jewish nation, but the sins of the whole world, even us who are far off, even us who come from the east, who are unknowns, who we don't know the name, how many of them are, who've had to travel, travel miles to get here. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said. This is the one who is to come. This is the sacrifice for our sins. This is the type of king he is. The king who lays down his life for his sheep. And so Christians early on adopted the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Paul talks about it. 
adopts the phrase Jesus is Lord as like a statement of what they're about. Jesus is Lord is what the Christians are about. And that is quite a statement in an empire where Caesar is Lord. Where Caesar decides whether you live, Caesar decides whether you die, Caesar decides whether you're right or whether you're wrong, Caesar decides everything. Well, this little sect of this little religion in this little corner of the empire say, no, Jesus is Lord. And what he says we will do. And you can take our lives. You can burn our bodies. You can destroy our homes. You can take our money. And still, Jesus is Lord. And we're going through times at the moment of quite uncertainty in this nation and across our part of the world. Some of you have voted for Brexit and think it's an excellent idea. Some of you have voted against Brexit and think it's a terrible idea. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus is Lord, whatever happens to us. And that doesn't mean you have to give up your convictions about whether this is a good path or a bad path. It doesn't mean you have to, you have to fall into line with the majority opinion. It does mean that Jesus is Lord, that he is overseeing everything that happens in world politics. And that his church will prevail no matter what happens. Just as in Israel, when it was a time of glory in the reign of King David, God was with them and protecting them. And when they were in exile in Babylon and things seemed so bad, God was with them and protecting them. God was making Daniel be a, a governor so that he could protect his people. God was, God was talking directly in the ear of a foreign king, King Nebuchadnezzar, to to make him see the glory of the God of Israel. And God raised up Babylon, and then they fell. God raised up Persia and the Medes, and then they fell. God raised up the Greek Empire, and then it fell. God raised up the Roman Empire and brought it down. God is doing what he is doing for our good, whatever it is. And whether this is a time for Britain to rise and be a world-leading superpower again, it's all well and good, Jesus is Lord. If this is a time for Britain to fall and become quite a small, insignificant nation on a world stage, then that is good because Jesus is Lord and his church will prevail. Let's stand. <coughs> Father God, you have revealed to us your son. And we have responded. We've either responded with joy like the um, wise men did and come and worship you or have responded in some other way. Maybe even like Herod, Herod did in anger and fear that our gods would be overthrown that our position would be ruined, that our life would be changed. Lord God, I pray that you would work in us all to worship you. You would work in us all to become like the wise man who sought out your son, Jesus Christ, who gave gifts to him, gifts that he had created in the first place. Of, our own do we give, of your own do we give you. But gifts of what they had to you 
out of worship. May we be those people who give gifts of what we have been given by you, to you, in worship to you. May we lay our lives at your feet and may you do with them what we will. May we trust you about our lives, about our situations, about our struggles. And may we trust you about the situation and lives we find ourselves in on a world and political stage. May we trust you ultimately that you are Lord, that you are God, and that just as you as God had the power to lay down your life for the sins of the world and the power to lift it back up again, to take it back up again and rise from the dead, you also have power to keep us safe, to enable us to fulfill your will in this country and this world, no matter what the situation is. And we pray as this year goes forward that you would be glorified in us as we do what you tell us to do. May we be like the servants of the wedding in Cana when Mary says, just do whatever he tells you. May we just do whatever you tell us in the year ahead. Amen.